everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write, that's also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. That is true. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. You can take a look at my interview with Lydia Millet. That was a fun conversation. And it's up there on authormagazine.org. And we are funded by the good people at the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. To learn more about the PNWA, you can go to pnwa.org. And uh, listen, uh, I'm going to be, I got a couple of specials coming up here for January because Happy New Year. Here we are, right? Well, isn't that cool? Yeah. So it's January. So if you want to meet with me one on one virtually, for a little one-on-one fearless writing, well, you can do so. Only $99. That's a deal. And uh, that, that, and then I've got a class, a four-week fearless writing intensive. Intensive. We're going to dive into these techniques and apply and see how they apply to you personally. So if you are interested in any of that, well, you can go to williamkenauer.com and sign up for it. And, oh, start off start off the new year with a bang. I really enjoyed the conversation I had with Henriette Lazaridis. Uh, her neck, I interviewed her when her first novel came out a bunch of years ago. Now she's got a new one out. Great conversation about stories, about myth, about research, all that good stuff. And, oh, a lot of fun. So I'm glad to get to share it with you, Henriette. Uh, Lazaridis's debut novel, The Clover House, that was her first, uh, was a Boston Globe bestseller and a Target emerging author's pick. Her work has been published in such outlets as Elle, Forge, Narrative Magazine, The New York Times, New England Review, The Millions, WBUR's Cognoscenti, and Pangiris. And she is a recipient of a Massachusetts Cultural Council Artist's Grant. Henriette earned degrees in English literature from Middlebury College, Oxford University, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, and the University of Pennsylvania. Having taught English at Harvard, she now teaches at Grub Street in Boston, and like I said, she's got a new novel out. It's called Terra Nova. It's a good one. And here's that conversation we had. Enjoy. All right. Well, it's Henriette. Henriette, how are you doing? I'm good. It's great to talk to you, Bill. Yeah, we were just conferring. We met, we talked, we think, nine years ago <laughs> when you released Clover House. So it's been nine years since you've published a book, a fiction book, period. Is this it? Second book? And Yeah, but that does, yeah, I, which makes it sound like I've been sitting around eating bonbons the whole time, but I haven't, I promise. I have a couple other books in inventory. I'm working on uh-huh. something else now. Um but yeah. All right. So that was nine years ago. All right. Let's back up a little bit, though. So Clover House comes out. It's a, it does it does well for a debut book. You, you mm-hmm. did great. Um, you you have an interesting history with storytelling. If if your biography is to be believed, and it is, <laughs> it is. Which is that you started with your dad, who is Greek. Is he from Greece itself? Yeah. Both my parents came to the states married soon after they were married in there they were 35 years old when they came oh okay so yeah. you were speaking greek at home yep you probably can still speak it indeed okay. <laughs> don't try talking to me i don't understand but he read you the odyssey is that what he was reading you? yeah i mean he would just tell the stories he he didn't even read from it you know he would just wow. my parents well, in my household 
Yeah, in in my household, it was as if the the figures from Greek myth and from the Odyssey were like our relatives. Wow. You know, my mother would take umbrage sometimes if somebody said something incorrect about I don't know Persephone or something. She'd be like, "No, no." <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. It was an oral tradition. <laughs> wow. And so he would tell you these stories, and how young were you when you were hearing them? I mean, I was a little kid who was getting told my bedtime stories. I remember the Trojan horse as a story. And and weirdly, it's coming to me now that like, isn't there a moment in Treasure Island when the boy, because I read Treasure Island as a kid over and over and over, but yeah. the boy is like hiding in a barrel and I, yeah. and listening to the pirates. Um, and in my mind, I think the Trojan horse, the soldiers horse. hiding in the Trojan horse and the boy hiding in the barrel were sort of the same. <laughs> well, you know, these things, these tropes continue through literature, don't they? So and that I was, do. and so, all right, so this made an impression on you. Because, okay. you know, one of the first questions I ask a lot of my my authors is, when did you first notice you cared about stories? So apparently you noticed it before you even noticed almost anything else. I really think that's true. Yeah. Uh, my, you know, I think a lot of people can claim that, and and rightly so, that their family are, are great storytellers, because that's kind of mm. how we interact with our family yeah. members. Yep. You tell yep. stories about the people who aren't there. You tell stories about the people who are there when, you know, in the past. But I do think, I mean, my parents were legit good storytellers. Yeah. And they had all ah. kinds of great adventures to talk about. So, And as you, as you grow up and go out into the world, you meet people who Look at everybody tries. They tell stories and you think, ah, that one didn't compel me quite as the one that my parents. Had. If you've been told good stories, you start knowing the difference as some people are amateurs. Let's say they're still learning anyway. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Right. No, I think that's true. I think that's true. You develop a real appreciation for a story that's well told or a good story that's well told. Yeah. I think that the relationship, because I grew up in a family of storytellers, too, and you know, writing became my main way of telling stories. That's not really, I still tell stories when I teach and talk to people when mm -hmm. we do these things. But I think the relationship between the oral, like telling a person a story across the dinner table and then sitting down to write a book, there is a direct connection I think you can make in that experience about knowing how to hold people's attention, about knowing what to leave out, what to put in. Yeah. I think that's true. I often, if I'm teaching, sometimes I'm teaching students who they may be coming brand, brand new to storytelling. And I used to teach a class or a seminar on like writing hist writing fiction from family stories. So oh. people have this family story and they get hung up on like, I have to write it down and that's so difficult and so challenging. And I always go back to like, if you were sitting at a bar and, or a coffee shop telling someone what happened to you, think about the economies that you use there and the patterns and the, the way you set a story up. It's the same kind of patterns and setups that we do in writing. It's not, it's not so scary. It's not so foreign. It doesn't have, I mean, I have two thoughts in mind about this always, which is the one, which is the um, Flannery O'Connor quote. I don't know if it's accurate, which is everyone knows what a story is until they tell one. And <laughs> so I think there's some truth to that. But I also think when I'm teaching storytelling, it's like, I sometimes I want to shake the students and say, have you not spent your life consuming stories, seeing yeah. them on TV, reading them, hearing them? You know what a story, like, don't overthink this. You know, it has a beginning, middle and end. You know, there's a problem. You know, there's a That's right. That's right. Yeah. And when we're very little, like we know from fairy tales and folk tales and what the patterns are. And if you, it doesn't mean that every story needs to be told in that no. set way, following those patterns, but at least it's something to play off of. If you know that like, oh, 
it, there are going to be three attempts to solve the problem. Right, and the third right, one right, is generally right. going to be yeah. the one. We were watching something the other day and I was like, okay, this one's going to work. And sure enough, it was like, Yeah, yes. well, if you're watching a mystery, the first person they think is guilty is like, well, that's not the one. Right. And then in this case, it was like it was the Icelandic noir and they were looking through cars that were parked in snowbanks. And of course, the third car was the one. Right. Right. <laughs> All right. So you so you, you love stories. You go and you study. Oh, you're such a smarty. You go to you're a Rhodes Scholar. You go off to England and get your what advanced degree. Is that how did you get your like PhD? Yeah. Or what did you do? No, I got my master's degree there. I went with uh, when I got the scholarship, my intention was to finish the BA that I had started there as a junior. So I was going to get a second BA because they do three yeah. years and I'd already done one. Yeah. And then I decided that, you know, people are spending money to send me to do this thing and I should get a serious degree. Not that a BA isn't a serious degree, but yeah. So yeah, I just I, read, I read a ton yeah. and um, wrote a ton. What kind of, of stuff were you writing? Oh, academic, academic stuff at that yeah. point. I That yeah. was the sort of moment when, uh, yeah, I have no regrets, but I guess I do have this one, like what would have happened if I hadn't decided at that point, like I would say to people, people say, oh, aren't you, you were going to be a novelist. And I'd say, yeah, I decided I'm not good enough. So I'll just critique other people's fiction. That's what you would say? That's what I would say out loud. Why and did you, some, what made you decide you weren't I don't know. I really don't know because I had had like up until that point through, you know, college literary magazine and stuff. It wasn't like I was failing, but you I think young. I just kind of decided I can tell you part of it was my parents were very supportive of the idea of me going to New York and becoming, as they would say, a starving novelist. I was going to like work in okay. publishing and yeah. write on the side. They were very supportive. And I think at some point I was like, well, screw that. I have to rebel. Therefore, I'm going to be an academic and be a serious person. Do you think you were maybe scared a little bit too? Not to put you on the couch, but I mean, it's scary. You, you have to I, face I, yeah, here's, right? here's where, when I got scared. After being in academia for 15 years, I started to feel this almost like physical itch of like, ah, I need to be making something. And I finally decided that I would quit academia and go back to writing fiction. And then I was scared for several years. How old I was, were you at that point? Oh, I was 38 years old and I was yeah. sabotaging myself yeah. every chance I got. Yeah. How I would, would you do it? How, I would, what was your preferred method of sabotage? Um, home repair <laughs> and, 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 and sports and, and it, the sports was this terrible, Doing I mean, sports sports. Was a huge part of my life. But right. at that time it served as this real crutch because it's such an antithetical world to the world of publishing or traditional totally, publishing totally where different. you yeah. send something yeah. out into the ether and you have no idea. Right. Whereas sports gave you this immediate feedback, right? right. I, I trained hard. I went faster. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Constant correlation. Yeah. And so I would go, oh, I would never miss a workout, but I would miss writing sessions. And then I, would, I, I could say to myself, well, you'd be more successful as a writer if you devoted more time to it, but that's okay. Right. But at the same time, I was yearning for success that I wasn't ever going to get if I didn't really pour everything into it. It was hard. It's, it's fascinating because so you have the discipline. You know, this is why when I when I hear some writers talk about you just got to put your butt in the seat. I'm like, it's not enough because no. you can put your butt in the seat and make a hash of it and walk away and want to kill yourself and think, you know, I mean, you can do all kinds of 
terrible things to yourself with your butt in the seat. So, yeah, but true. one of the reasons I, I teach, I coach a lot of writers, and a lot of it's psychological, the psychological challenges. And one of the things that's fascinating about writing that is different than so many other things. So I, I also, sports is a big thing. So I know the discipline of saying, you think you don't want to do it, but you're going to go up that hill again. You think you don't want to do it, but you're going to run the next, right. So all that kind of physical challenge, even when you're tired, you keep going, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. there is the, 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 unlike so many other disciplines, even every writer I know loves to write once they're going, and yet they don't do this thing that they love to do once they're actually doing it. So in other words, when you get in the flow, you're loving it. When you're deep in the story, you're loving it. And yet you don't do it. Even yeah. though you, and, right? Well, I think sometimes we, the stakes are, they. it feels like the stakes are so high. I often tell people like, if you're worried about beginning or at pick any moment in the story, then you, you can't tell yourself, this is the beginning. Like set a timer. I'm a big fan of timers. Ooh, tell yourself, I'm going to do this three different ways, 10 minutes each. And that way it takes the pressure off each one. But yeah. we do approach. I mean, I don't always practice what I preach. It's challenging to say, okay, like I haven't worked on my novel in progress for a few days. So when I sit back down to my notebook, because I write longhand, you know, the, the first words, you you especially with longhand, you feel like, oh, they're so precious because they, right. they're going to be beautiful, beautiful objects in ink on paper. Right. So you have to do all these psychological tricks to get yourself to just go, just go. Yeah, well, one of the things I preach is that the mindset you go into write is different than almost any other part of your life because you're not reacting to anything because writing mm -hmm. is all internal. It is no, because we're reacting to each other right now, but, and you always react, even in sports, you're reacting to the oar, to the track, to the ball, to the everything, right? That's true. I play music, same thing. I'm react. I'm dealing with, you know, I'm interacting with at least, but with writing, yeah, 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 yeah. nothing. <laughs> you're inter it's all inside. It's all inside. That's right. That's right. So every motion that you're going to generate to create a word on the page that comes from this great sort of imaginative inertia. That's right. You have to, you have to move the boulder every time. That's right. That's right. It can be scary. Yeah. All right. Listen, Terra Nova. Oy, yay, yay, yay. So <laughs> I will tell you, you did such a good job of, I mean, you had a couple challenges. So this just for our listeners, if they haven't read it yet. It came out beginning of December, December 6th. Um, and it, it's a fictionalized, it's sort of, uh, what, who was he? The Scott, uh, that's um, sort of, sort of a fictionalized characters sort of loosely based on that early 1910. Well, was that when they, when this is set? so, yeah, my, my guys are kind of slotted into the history ahead or in between two expeditions of Scots. Okay. So they're, they're not based on Scott because Scott would never do the things that these guys do. Uh -huh. really, really wouldn't. Um, but they're, they're in that world. They're, they're fictional examples of the kind of person that Scott would have known. Right. So these guys, so, so this book has fellows, three, pri primarily three characters, two going to the South Pole, trying to go to the South Pole around 1910, and it's just miserable. And then a woman who is in kind of a relationship with both of them in one way or another back in England, in London, where the suffragette movement is in full swing, and she's a photojournalist. So you, so you had your work cut out for you on a lot of different I mean, narratively, it's challenging. And then you just got to learn a bunch of crap about a place you've never been or learned. Like this is, you know, everybody has to, you're, it's an historical piece in that way. It's not an historical yeah. novel. I wouldn't call it precisely, but it has a lot of history in it. You know, I don't, it, I don't know. I don't know. Where they yeah. slot it? They call it historical fiction. 
I think so, but I like that you said this is a historical piece because I didn't want it to feel like when I this isn't fair. I think of historical novels as much, much bigger, much more um, all encompassing in yeah. their world. And I, I, there's a lot I don't tell you. I yeah. just expect you to infer it. So it, right. it's different that way. It's more the story than about the time because historical novels tend to be like for people who want to know about Elizabethan England or whatever, you know, right? Just fun. So you had a big challenge to 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 to. I think that you set yourself, which you met admirably. I mean, it was brutal reading about the. I just had to deal with a little winter here, just a little winter here in Seattle when I started reading this, and I was like, oh god, it's twenty five degrees, and I feel like I'm going to die. (laughs) <laughs> so what but so did you were you daunted by that or did you just dig in and just eat up all that research and i i wasn't daunted i you know because i've been obsessed with scott since i was seven years old um so i've much. kind of like all my life i've been dipping into little bits and pieces of antarctic history um just really all the time all the time, little by little by little. I can't say at all that I am thoroughly knowledgeable because my focus is really has always been this eclectic thing about like fascination with Scott. Um, but so I did my research for that part kind of as I went along, like I would be writing and then I'd say, hold on a second, what kind of fuel does a primus oh, stove see. burn? Okay. Right. And, but I would just, I started writing kind of knowing for better or for worse, knowing what I needed to say, but the suffrage stuff, I didn't know. Yeah, um, I didn't know the details of Holloway Prison and the force feeding and the Artist Suffrage League, which was a real thing. And um, the, all the characters who actually like speak in the novel are invented. But right. you know, I, they, I didn't know. Um, I had to research around that. That's interesting. So you started kind of already having, at least in terms of the Antarctic stuff, a certain baseline knowledge and did I'll just fill in as I go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot you have to fill in because that's always that's when I when I was writing fiction and I would make it a little historical. That was the part that would drive me crazy. It's like if I write about you know 20th century, 21st century Seattle, I don't need to do, but I know what it is, and I can just I can just go to my memory. But there's so much tiny lived detail that you that just yeah. gets lost to the fog of time that you that without it, it doesn't feel real, right? <laughs> That's true. Like I looked up things like I knew at one point that I wanted um, Haywood to pull out a chocolate bar um, from his jacket or something. If I yeah. remember my own book correctly, he's yeah. got it in his, in his pocket. And then I had to th- like, well, I don't know what color the wrappings were. I'm pretty sure I know Cadbury oh, goes God. way back. Like I knew it would be Cadbury's because I know that's a really old brand. But it was like, right. OK, now I have to research what color is the wrapping paper, um, things like that. But um, thank God for the Internet. I know it's a wonderful <laughs> thing. <laughs> God. All right. Well, so I know this is a silly question, but did you like writing it? Was it was it ultimately a satisfying experience for you? It is actually it's a that's a great question because first of all, it's it was sort of two experiences at least, but the experience of writing the men's narrative, which I did all at once, is mm-hmm. one of my favorite writing experiences ever. Really? I, I treasure, I treasure, I wrote it from December, I looked this up recently, December 2nd of 2015 to like the end of March. And I just enjoyed the process so much. It was, I I like writing in the dark. So when the solstice comes around, I'm always disappointed because the days are getting longer, which is weird because I do like to be outside. But I embrace the dark and I, I, I would get up every morning at five and make coffee and sit in the dark writing longhand. And I really 
enjoy that time because your brain hasn't had time to become distracted and you can kind of live in that dream that we were talking about at the beginning about how you have to be your you can't be reactive you're completely initiating that world every time but i it was just really enjoyable even though i was often unsure uh of whether i was going anywhere literally (laughs) figuratively my 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 partner my now husband would come in the door and he'd say you know how are the boys doing and i'd say (laughs) i don't know they just got cold they fell in a hole they got out of the hole like (laughs) it felt to me like nothing was happening and um and so you didn't have so you didn't you just knew you wanted to write about these guys you had some sense but it sounded like you were going to find the story as you went a little bit i knew that they were going to get to the pole and do something dishonorable um, and I knew from very early on, um, you can see it in my notes, it kind of cracks me up, but you can see in my notes a very early reference to Antonioni's film Blow Up, which if you know the film, this it's set in the 60s and there's a fashion yeah. photographer he's taking, right. he's doing a photo shoot. And in the I background- know about it because of the American... DePaul, Brian, he do it. I know it was he was a, a remake. Of it. Yeah. He's gonna remakes of it. Yeah. That's right. Which I haven't seen, but yeah, but yeah. So the photographer, played by David Hemmings, he in as he's in his dark room enlarging the photos of Vanessa Redgrave, he sees the evidence that a crime was right. committed. There's like right. a dead body, and and so yeah. he's enlarging the photos, and I really was intrigued by that. So I knew that I knew two guys gonna go to the pole, and do something dishonorable. And one had to be taking pictures. And one was going to be taking pictures. Yeah. I knew photography was going to be a part of it. And then I, I thought, well, okay, there has to be a third element because the two isn't, yeah. that's not unstable enough. So I'm going to okay. throw in Viola as the sort of truly destabilizing element. So Right, right. And then you just found your way. And then you just found your way. You know, I love writing in the morning. That's when I write. And I do, I have a, I have a belief that psychically the world is still then. It's dark. No one's up and about and not many people. And I just feel like it's cleaner. My There's less distraction in my immediate world, but I just think in general, in my in the <laughs> city, even there's less, I just find that this, everything is quiet, which is better for writing. That's why I, 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 yeah, I agree. I like that a lot. And, and I would, I would write. And of course it was dark out and eventually around seven or seven thirty, depending on what time of year it was, you know, they would start to get gray outside. And also my dog, my beloved golden retriever, um would come downstairs at around 7 30 and stare at me and I have, <laughs> I have all these pictures like all through those four months of the dog staring at me from like the table like his nose is here he's like yeah. looking because he wants me to feed him breakfast but he yeah. just was very patient That's so good. for that too it's like I'm very he he died at 13 and a half wow. right at the beginning of the pandemic and so it's like I have this fond memory of like I shared this with my beloved dog oh that's nice that's yeah nice. Dogs are good company. I have cats for company. It's different. It's very different. They're they're anarchists. We have a cat. <laughs> Which I appreciate about them, but <laughs> it's different than a dog. All right. So this came out, like I said, in December. And I'm always interested. You know, I was just talking to um, Lydia Millet about this. And so oh. she's, you know, she had a book out and, you know, you, you, you dig in, you publish it, you write it. It's all interior and it comes out. And then I think the nice part about publishing Aside from all the accolades <laughs> and all the money, <laughs> if you see any of, right? I know, funny. Uh, is the conversation that might ensue? You get to not just with people like me, but with the hopefully readers. So, what 
kind of a conversation have you been afforded since the publishing of it? I've done you know a lot of conversations where it's great. I I I have had many opportunities. People will ask about how I got the genesis for the idea, mm-hmm. or Scott, yeah. or Antarctica, and and I, it never gets old for me. Every time I say this, it is it is still as fascinating to me as the oh, first nice. time I had said it, which is I can't get over what it must have felt like to be Robert Falcon Scott and go all that way to the South Pole racing against Roald Amundsen and get there and find his flag already there. I just, <laughs> I cannot grasp that. And so it's like, to me, it's like this great opportunity to, to just express that fascination. What, I, what? Okay. So if you could unpack it, I mean, obviously it's a fantastic, you know, the, um, it's not irony. It's what is the disappointment I mean, what is, what is it, do you feel like there's anything in your own life that has ever felt like that? That were you just- That's the thing, I don't think so. I think, you know, I have I have done lots of races and I've lost lots of races, but to, right. to lose by coming in second and like by doing, like he did it. He did the exact same It shouldn't same matter. Thing. It shouldn't have right. mattered to, it's right? It's so interesting. It's so interesting to me. And it makes me think about originality and- copies and what's fake and what's real and is the second iteration of something less valuable than the first i don't know and so i've had conversations in this vein with people that is really fun because i get to go oh my god um and i i've enjoyed you know people have said like oh it's so cold how did you write that and i i I enjoy talking about the cold and i've not yet been to antarctica um but that I, the pandemic kind of messed up some plans there, but that's okay. It feels like you have. I feel like I have. Yeah, you see, you did your work. That's good. No, really, it's beautifully written, and really, um, it, well, you just did a you did a great job with two challenge with two totally different environments, and you really dug in and 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 used them for many purposes, and I I really admired it. So great work. You oh, thank proud. you should be proud um all right so like it was nine years in between i'm not going to criticize you should you gotta work at your own pace but um you're not in academia anymore you said you've got you haven't you've got so you've got a new work in project new work in process yeah right um yeah Yeah. what what is your what are your ambitions for yourself these days writing i mean let me rephrase that what are you interested in about writing in general right now like what's got your that's your attention. I'm actually interested in trying to slow down in in ah. in sort of generally going slowly. And so in those nine years that intervened between the Clover House and Terra Nova, I actually was in a hurry. I wrote one manuscript that my agent um, we probably went out with it too soon and it yeah. didn't sell. Yeah. I wrote a second one that uh, Oh, no, that's, that's, no, that's right. That's, that's, I've, I've, I wrote a second one that I'm waiting to do something with. Okay. And, and now I'm writing and I rewrote Terra Nova like twice. So I was busy. Um, But I think I've written things where I've written too quickly. And Mm -hmm. I, I was pleased with myself and proud of myself for being so generative. Like I wrote that 
half-baked novel, I'll just call it that, in the year after the Clover House came out. So I immediately got to work. Like I was doing book events and I was writing this other novel. And there was, I felt there was a virtue in that. And we have a culture that valorizes that kind of haste, but doesn't call it haste. And so I think for me, it's almost like I want to do for my own self, the sort of the slow the slow writing version of the slow food movement that kicked off, you know, in the Piedmont in Italy, however many years ago, like the slow food, I I feel like I need to slow down. And, and I'm, I'm thinking a lot more, it seems really hipstery and I'm too way too old to be a hipster. Um, (laughs) but It it seems hipstery to talk about analog things, but I've been realizing how much analog stuff I do and, Mm. I I want to sort of take lessons from that because what analog does is it makes you slow down. I, yeah. If I write longhand, that's that introduces another step in my process where before I even can look at it on the screen, I have to type it up. I have to edit as I type. So, yeah, I, don't you know, know I think you're onto something, Henriette. I think it's because I think that one of the things I like speed too. And I, for a while I wrote an essay a day, which was fine. It was good. I, I know 400 words, but you know, I was doing five a week and I was publishing a month and this magazine I edited and it was great. I learned a lot in that time, but I also knew they weren't going to be perfect. And I let that go. Yeah. But I do think that there is something that when you're in this, when you're zooming along and you're cooking, it's great. But I think we can mistake the, what is being produced for the connection we seek while writing. Does that make sense? In other words, I can feel it yeah. connection to the thing that provides the, when I'm not writing now that I'm older and I go slower. Yeah. Where before I thought if I'm not, the words aren't flying off my fingers, then I've, I'm lost. Like, I don't know. Does that make sense? Right. I think that's true. It's like in sports, when someone's in the zone, they're actually doing well physically. Yes. Yeah. But in writing, you can actually feel excited and feel in the zone and that you might not be doing your best work. So you might need yeah. to go back and unpack it and, rework it and and enjoy yeah. that and enjoy the rework like that's the thing right. it's taking pleasure in saying it because i used to read write stuff and think oh it's bad but all i was recognizing was that i had not met my own aesthetic i mm. had, i had mistake mm. and a lot of people do this i don't know if you have ever thought about this but we see something we don't like and we think we've done it wrong as opposed to just not pleased ourselves which is always what we're trying to do when we write does that make sense? The subtle difference between yeah. saying, oh, I did a, it's a bad sentence as if everybody would see it that way, as opposed to just, I don't like this sentence. I don't like right. this sentence. Well, because I think you always, I think we always have kind of a style sheet of our own devising yeah. for everything yeah. we're working on. And I know like when I'm like for Terra Nova and it would be different for the, book. it is different for the book I'm working on now, but for Terra Nova, I had a sort of style sheet evolved in my mind and I would start writing something and then I'd be like, oh, no, we're not doing that here. Right, <laughs> we're right, not doing that in right, this book. Right, Get rid of that book. gerund or whatever it was. I yeah. was like, there's going to be, you know, no few commas, hardly any commas or right. whatever it was. But it's that sort of sense of, yeah, this isn't quite where I wanted to. It didn't aim. I'm aiming, but I'm missing. But um, you got to understand, it, you got to own it, though. Like I'm aiming at my target. Because it's so, right, right, right. you know, you spend a lot of time as an author listening to what people think about your stuff, whether you want to or not, this feedback. And it's fine. Right. But at the end of the day, it's like, I want it to be this way and to completely yeah. own it's your desires that you're trying to satisfy, not someone else's. Right. I can lose because, track of it. 
that's the only part you can guarantee your your feeling of your success is the only part of the whole process that you can guarantee and if you're not happy don't look beyond that for you know i'm not happy but when the money comes in i'll be happy Right, right, <laughs> That's right. It's not right. going to happen. Or no. it could, but you can't guarantee it. No, you, it's really, if you can keep your eyes on what you can actually control, it goes so much better. And right. it's easy to lose track of it in writing because there's so many, even though it's not a film where there's, you know, thousands of, some, you know, theoretically and people right. involved, yeah. there's still enough other people involved that you have to be careful, I think. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you're a wise woman. Okay. So, <laughs> Henriette, so congratulations again. And I, you know, this seems like a book that people might want you to zoom into their living rooms and talk to them about. So, uh, do you do that sort of thing? I do. I love, you can probably tell, I love talking to readers. I yeah. just, I love talking to people. And people who are readers are the best kind of people. <laughs> people. <laughs> I know, I know. I heard that. I heard that. that. (laughs) Um, So good. So if they go on your website, they can, it could contact you about that. Definitely. Absolutely. People, you won't be disappointed. Okay. Well, I got one more question for you before I turn you loose. Uh, I want you to think about all the writing you've done, not just the novels, but nonfiction too. And if, if all that writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? (gasps) Oh my gosh. What a question. If all that writing has taught me anything. Ah, Ah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, Well, I'll tell you what it's taught me is that English in particularly, in particular, um, I think English is an incredibly nimble language. I think because it has so many other languages in it. Yeah, it is this incredible tool. And I mean, Greek, too, is this wonderful, wonderful language that you assemble like, like Legos. It's so and people play with it in ways that I don't know that we play with language in, in, in English. But I just think we have this incredible gift, whatever language we're writing in. It's it's a gift. It's just this wonderful thing. And I want to 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 try to to do as much as I can to sort of test it and stretch it like a sort of taffy of ideas and see what it's capable of because i think it's capable of all kinds of really interesting things i like it now that's interesting that's a good answer and it's the first one i've asked that probably a thousand times that's the first time someone's answered it that way so you see you had something new to bring to this conversation (laughs) good for you hey this has been a lot of fun henriette thank you so much thank you bill this is great I could have talked to Henriette for a long time. I liked that woman. I didn't do it. I like them all. But you know, we had a, we clicked. Um, you know, we do have a nimble language. I don't think about it because this is the only one I speak. But I've heard this from other people who are bilingual, that English is a good language to do stuff in. So aren't you glad? Yeah, a little bit. You're probably not. It's the only thing. If you're like me, this is what you got. So you're going to use it. Uh, hey, that was a lot of fun. I want to thank my producer, R.J. Jeffries, as always. I want to thank all of you for tuning in. Happy New Year. Hope it's going to be a good one. You know what you can do this year? Just focus on what you love to do. Just focus on that. That's all you got to do. So you go out there, you find something you love to do, and then you do it. Do it.